Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with George Zidane about ingredients. First, wanted to let you know that you can hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast through booksonpod.com. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. I'm Michael Moss. I'm the author of Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. George Zidane is a science communicator, host, and producer whose credits include National Geographic, MIT, The New York Times, Forbes, NPR, and much more. He's also now a published author. The book is called Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and on Us. George, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you, Trey? I am doing great. I am so happy to get to speak with you about a book that I'll be honest, at times goes over my head because I was never the strongest chemistry student in school. But that's why you're here, George, to help explain it to the layperson like myself. What was your initial goal with this book? So initially, I I really had a simple goal. I wanted to answer the question, why is processed food bad for you? And, you know, to be honest, uh, I didn't even question the assumption that I was making there that processed food was bad for you because I thought that was pretty well known. Um, But then what the book actually ends up doing, I think, is answering three important questions. The first is, you know, what is processed food? Why does it even exist? Um, The second is, how bad for you is it really? And the third question is how much can you trust the answer to that second question? And that's really the heart of the book, is how much can we trust science and the scientific method? And you not only break down processed food, but also cigarettes, e-cigs, you talk sunscreen, you talk coffee a little bit as well. As far as processed foods are concerned, that subject is a bit more complex than some may realize. For instance, those fresh fruits and vegetables and those cuts of meat in the butcher department, those things are processed. But is there a good way to maybe define the sorts of processed foods that you're trying to examine here? Those absurdly cheap, ridiculously convenient, universally delicious, and barely recognizable as food foods? I mean, you just said it. Yeah, it's a really important point that almost everything we eat or put on our bodies or inhale or drink is processed in some way, whether that's, you know, very light touch processing or whether that's completely constituted food in a factory somewhere. Um, and there's a, there's a Brazilian scientist um, who came up with kind of a ranking, a food processing ranking. Goes from group one to group four. Uh, group one is like basically parts of plants or animals, you know, leaves, cuts of meat, that kind of thing. Um, group two is stuff like salt or butter. You're not going to find it in nature, but it's fairly easy to make from things that you'd find in nature. Um, group three is stuff you make by combining groups one and two. And then group four is what you just described. It's like, you know, Oreos, Cheetos, chips, the stuff that you see in the supermarket that is, you know, been sitting on a shelf for a long time, very preserved, um, very, very processed. That's kind of the real heart of the book. And while you shouldn't necessarily judge a book by its cover, George, I do have to admit I enjoyed the front cover of your book. It's just a giant (laughs) picture of a Cheeto. For those who are unfamiliar, how is a Cheeto actually created? 
it's really interesting. You take um, basically cornmeal and then a bunch of um, flavorings and spices that are secret. I actually emailed Frito-Lay and asked them what was in a Cheeto, but they wouldn't tell me the, <laughs> the spices and flavoring part. Um, and you run it through uh, what's called a high temperature extruder. Uh, and you can think of it kind of like a corkscrew and inside of the negative space around a corkscrew. And you, you run this thing at really high speed and the friction um, caused by the corkscrew rubbing against the sort of anti-corkscrew and the cornmeal heats it up. Um, and the water that's in that meal uh, boils, turns to steam, and uh, the thing gets, it comes out the other end and cools down and that's how it gets crunchy because all the water has left. And that's why if you break a Cheeto open, you'll see lots of little air pockets inside the structure of the Cheeto. So it's really cool actually. Yes, it is. And uh, Cheetos are amongst the 58% of Americans' diet that consists of hyper-processed food, which, of course, ultimately necessitates all the fad diets out there. And you do a great job of listing the numerous fad diets that at least a couple of people partake in each and every year. That, of course, includes the carnivore diet. I've heard some proponents of the carnivore diet say that this uh, diet is good in part because vegetables are bad for you because they are releasing toxic chemicals that can be harmful to the consumer. Is there any truth to this? So the short answer is kind of, actually. I mean, here's the deal. Um, a lot of people look at animals, uh, a lot of scientists look at animals as kind of a filter to the plant world. And what I mean by that is plants, um, plants cannot defend themselves in the traditional way. They can't bite or scratch or bark or do anything that animals can. So in order to prevent themselves from getting eaten too much, um, a lot of plants produce uh, toxins. They will use biological and chemical warfare to defend themselves. So for example, uh, there are like 2,000 species of plants that produce cyanide. Um, now, when an and there are some animals that can kind of get around the... Um, the, the chemical defenses that plants uh, put on themselves. So typically, you know, you're not going to eat a cut of beef and have that beef be intrinsically toxic. Uh, now, the, the, the place where it stretches belief a little bit to me is going from that to saying like, oh, you should only eat meat because vegetables are bad for you. You know, if you're buying broccoli and stuff in a supermarket, that's not going to be toxic. Um, there are certain things like, you know, they tell you not to eat potatoes that have sprouted um, because the potatoes will actually start to produce their own toxins, toxins while they're sitting in your pantry. But really, by and large, like if you're buying stuff in a grocery store, whether it's meat or vegetable or whatever, uh, it's not going to be inherently toxic to you. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, potato because you do break down the history of processing foods. What do clay and wild potatoes have to do with some of the first humans' efforts to process food? So, Trey, this is actually one of the most interesting things that I discovered. You know, I thought, like, okay, processed foods were invented relatively recently in human history, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, somewhere in there. But uh, the more I dug into it, the more I realized we've actually been processing foods for longer than we've had history. We've probably been processing foods uh, since the very, very beginnings of human civilization. And so one of the cool and crazy ways I found that, that ancient civilizations used to process food is by 
essentially freeze-drying potatoes in their own backyard. And keep in mind, this is thousands of years ago. There's no such thing as like a Whirlpool freeze-dryer. These are not, you know, this is like, you're taking an advantage of living at high altitudes, cold temperatures, uh, dry, uh, dry days with warm sun, and then very, very cold nights um, to, to basically create freeze-dried potatoes that will last you not only through the winter, which is really important, but through the next famine. Some, some people say these potatoes last 20 years, and they're, they're made, by the way, by uh, a group of people called the Aymara who live in what is, I believe, modern-day Peru. And so, like, you know, there are countless examples of how we've been processing food for, for thousands of years, and like the stuff we did is so ingenious, and I explore a couple of things in, in the book. But yeah, man, it's, it's, it's wild. It made me chuckle when you referred to animals and plants that have been harvested for food as having been murdered. And when that happens, at that point, it does become a race between eaters and the process of decomposition. And this is a big part of what led to the preservation techniques that we are still using to this day. What does happen when something starts to decompose, whether it is a plant or an animal? Basically, there's two things that can happen. The first thing is that whatever has just died, whether it's plant or animal, can start to digest itself. And the other thing is that um, bacteria, fungi, molds, all the stuff that's just floating around us all the time can find that dead thing and start growing on it, multiplying it, and eating it. So, you know, you leave strawberries in the fridge too long, you get that white fuzz on them. Um, that is a great example of one of the things that'll happen. And that's, you know, fundamentally, that's the same thing that happens if you have, let's say a deer dies out in the woods, you know, you've got, um, the deer's microbiome, its gut in its gut, uh, starts digesting it from the inside out. You've got microbes in the soil that start digesting the deer. Uh, you know, you've got critters that come by and, and snag a piece. Um, so yeah, the moment something dies, there's this race between, uh, the humans who want to eat it and the microbes who want to eat it too. And, uh, whoever wins determines whether, you know, we have a safe meal or whether we're ingesting a bunch of microbes that are going to give us gastrointestinal, shall we say, distress. <laughs> Why is formaldehyde one of, if not the best embalmer in the world? And is it good for preserving food as well? So formaldehyde is, the number one thing that, that humans use uh, to embalm dead humans. And basically, it's a very simple molecule. Um, it's just a carbon and oxygen and two hydrogens. And um, it is very, very reactive. And it reacts in a particular way. It, it's a really good what's called a cross-linker. So you can think of it like glue. So if you imagine New York City, and if I told you, okay, I'm going to take 6 million pounds of super glue and just spray it all across New York City, what would happen? That's kind of what happens when you run formaldehyde through the veins of a living thing. I mean, it just stops all movement. And when you stop all movement, you stop life. Um, now, the problem with doing that is, uh, you know, if I told you, like, hey, I'm going to preserve this hamburger by coating it in super glue here, have a bite, you know, that's not necessarily something you're going to want to eat. And it's the same thing with formaldehyde. It, it's, it, it, when you preserve something so strongly like that, it, you turn it into what is basically a museum. It, it's no longer food. So the trick with preservation and what humanity has been so good at doing for such a long time is 
preserving something just enough so that the microbes can't eat it, but not so much that we can't eat it. Drying out is, uh, or drying rather, is another effective method of preservation. Why is this? So drying is one of probably the simplest and the one of the oldest things we've been doing to preserve food. And the answer is because all living things need water to survive. Now, different living things need different amounts of water. There are some microbes that uh, can make do with, with very, very little. Um, but if you've got something like a potato chip that's very, very dry or like rice that's, that's fairly dry, uh, you know, there's not a lot that's going to be able to live on that food. And so simply by drying something out, you take away the number one ingredient for life that everything needs, and that means you stop microbial growth. I believe you pointed out that we're 60% water. I enjoyed the illustration that shows how we're not <laughs> 60% water and also enjoyed the description of how and why we are. Highly encourage people to check out the book to read more about that. I was surprised to learn that honey is actually a dried out product. That surprises me, George, because I think about how soliform raw honey is and how water seems to have been added to the honey that we find in, let's say, the bottles shaped like a bear with the yellow top uh, that the honey comes out of. So how is honey a dried out product? It comes down to the structures of the sugars that make up honey. So if you look at the, those chemical structures, um, basically they have, they have what are called a lot of hydroxyl groups on them, and it's not really important to know the name. But the important thing about those is those groups will grab onto water molecules. And um, you can have one sugar molecule that can hold on to 10, 15, sometimes 20 water molecules. Um, and so what that does is it basically, you know, the water's still in the honey, but it's not available for other organisms to use. So that's one reason why honey is, is actually a really good preservative in and of itself. If you, let's say, drop a strawberry into honey, uh, that strawberry will stay preserved for a surprising amount of time. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, bees do this on purpose. The whole point of honey is to uh, have a preserved food that will last the hive through the winter. Um, so, and one way they do that is to sort of uh, dry the product without actually drying the product. They're tying up the water so it's unavailable for microbes. How does fermentation preserve? This is actually kind of a, a like a mind blowing thing. Um, fermentation basically involves taking microbes that we like, that are friendly to us, that are not going to give us diseases, and outnumbering bad microbes with the good microbes. So for example, yogurt. Uh, yogurt is made by basically fermenting milk with a lactobacillus, um, and it's a, it's a type of uh, bacteria. And essentially, you're growing so much of this bacteria, and it's multiplying and, and chewing up the, the sugars in the milk uh, and, and producing so much more of itself that there's no ecological space, there's no room for like bad microbes to grow because all the food is being used by the good microbe that we like. And you know, yeah, of course it changes the properties of the food. I mean, yogurt tastes, you know, yeah, it's a dairy product, but it, it doesn't flow like milk, it doesn't taste like milk. Um, but the key fact is that it's still edible. All right, George, this is going to be my favorite question to ask you in this interview. Why did Native Americans get credit for eating some of the first sugar-added treats that can be crudely but accurately be described as aphid shitballs? Okay, so this is a great story. Super, super ingenious way uh, of making what is basically candy. 
so what the Native American tribe uh, tribes who lived in uh, this is would be modern day Northern California, I believe, noticed is that there are these little insects called aphids, and there are sometimes they there are there can be like billions of them. They reproduce like crazy, um, and essentially. These insects survive by injecting a hypodermic needle into a plant, um, what is essentially a plant vein, and sucking out uh, the, the syrupy juice that powers plants. Um, and they extract the energy they need, and then they crap out the rest. And so what they, what they basically shit is uh, what we call honey, honeydew, which is pretty much syrup. I mean, it's almost straight-up syrup. Um, and so what, what Native Americans of the time noticed was, hey, you know, these aphids are pooping sugar all over these reeds. We can actually harvest this and turn this into candy. So uh, what they will do is let the, I don't actually, I don't know if they're still doing this, but what they did in the, at, back in the day was they would let the reeds dry uh, and that would crystallize the sugar on the reeds and then they would harvest the reeds and uh, basically beat the shit out of them on bare skin. And that would loosen the sugar off the reeds, and then they would, you know, take it, remove any, like, leftover aphids that happened to be caught up there, turn them into uh, basically little candy balls, and heat them up by the fire and eat them. I mean, that is, like, the coolest example of processing, food processing that I found through the entire book. Most of the processing is done by the aphid, but still, it's really awesome. Yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely try one if it was put in front of my face. Now, we're going to pause too. We're gonna pause on the processed foods. I promise for anybody listening right now, we'll get back to processed foods at the end of this conversation. But we do have to ask about some other products that seem obviously harmful for us to explore in some cases, whether they are, but also why they are so bad for us. For instance, cigarettes. Now, there's no dispute as to whether or not cigarettes are bad for humans. They have more than 70 molecules that cause cancer each on their own. How quickly do these chemicals go from being inhaled to other parts of the body? And why do these carcinogens increase the cancer risk in humans? The answer to the first one is ridiculously fast. Um, there was a study that was done not too long ago, actually, where um, they they did what they called radio labeled a cigarette. So what they did was they put a very very small amount of a radioactive molecule in in the cigarette, and then what you can do once you have that radioactive molecule in there is trace it as it makes its way through a person's body. So basically, they put someone in a, in an fMRI machine, gave them a cigarette told them to puff it, just one puff. And then something like, you know, one second later or two seconds later, it was detected in their circulating bloodstream. And then a few seconds after that, it had made its way, uh, you know, I don't know, somewhere ridiculous like the liver, I forget exactly. But like, I mean, basically instantaneously. Once you're puffing in a cigarette, that stuff is inside you immediately. And 10 to 20% of smokers get lung cancer and that may seem like a no a low number. It's not because you also consider some of the other comorbidities that are increased as somebody smokes more cigarettes throughout their life. But also specific to lung cancer, George, just how widespread was this disease before the popularization of cigarette smoking in the early 1900s? Lung cancer was and still to some extent is, if you subtract cigarette smoking, a very rare disease. Um, and so, you know, yeah, 10 to 20% of smokers get lung cancer, um, but people who don't smoke, that number is a lot smaller. Um, the, the risk of getting lung cancer, if you're a smoker, 
versus if you're not a smoker, it's, it's about 1,100% higher if you're a smoker. So that tells you how, how low the sort of baseline incidence of lung cancer would be if so many people uh, didn't smoke. You also compare cigarettes with e-cigs. What are the chemical differences and similarities between the two? We've been researching cigarettes for a long time because they've existed for a long time. Uh, E-cigs are newer. They were invented within the last decade or two. Um, so, you know, we don't understand uh, as much as we, as we do about regular cigarettes. But in general, uh, e-cigarettes are, they don't burn as hot. Uh, and they're somewhat less chemically complex. And even though we've we've identified some molecules in e-cigs that are the same as regular cigarettes, the levels are generally lower. So, you know, if you were to say to me, like, hey, um, I'm, I'm a two-pack-a-day smoker, and I really want to switch to something safer, are e-cigarettes safer? I would probably say yes. But if you were to say to me, hey, I don't smoke at all, should I start e-cigs? I mean, they're, they seem like totally safe. I would say absolutely not. You know, they're going to contain some stuff that's bad for you, probably not as much as in a regular cigarette, but there's no reason to start smoking e-cigs if you don't already smoke and you're not using it as a cessation aid. Unless you're like a natural at blowing copious amounts of, sp- of uh, smoke into art forms because there are now e-cig smoke... <laughs> competitions apparently and if you can win hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that maybe you consider smoking the e-cig then oh my god i'm putting my head in my hands right now now Trey. (laughs) (laughs) i I think one of the common chemicals between the two though is nicotine correct correct yes and nicotine why does it form on tobacco leaves so this is really interesting uh nicotine is made by the tobacco plant to basically be a pesticide um most people don't know, most people know that nicotine is, is very addictive. Most people don't know that in addition to that, nicotine is also just straight up toxic. I mean, it is poison. Um, so, you know, for example, if you, if you get a, a bottle of um, nicotine vape liquid, that has more than enough nicotine uh, to kill a child if they were to ingest that entire bottle because it's so toxic. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the reason that nicotine is in cigarettes in the first place is because the tobacco plant uses it to try and kill insects. And so that's how it ended up in a cigarette. Why it's addictive to us, that I'm not sure we know. All right, we're going to shift now to something that is near and dear to me as somebody who is fair-complected, who spends a lot of time outside and thus uses quite a bit of sunscreen. Before we get to sunscreen, though, one of the reasons why I love being outside is because of how it helps with my vitamin D levels. We normally associate photosynthesis with plants, but how is photosynthesis also a part of how we make vitamin D3? Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. Photosynthesis just means making stuff using light. Photo is light, synthesis is making stuff. And, um, you know, if you go by that definition, we actually do make vitamin D uh, in our skin as a result of being hit by sunlight. It, It just... There are certain reactions, there are certain proteins in our body that are activated by light, uh, and one of those is involved in the synthesis of vitamin D. So, you know, you do need a little bit of sun. You don't want to be a vampire, shall we say. You don't want to spend your life in a coffin. Uh, But uh, obviously too much sun, whether that is a sunburn uh, or whether that is the most extreme case of sunburn I had ever heard of, um, which I talk about in the book, uh, you know, is you don't want too much. You also don't want too little. 
obviously it's a little bit different from everybody, but is there a general line where it goes from good to bad? That's a really tough question. I, I think it, you know, I think it depends on where you live, um, your exact skin tone, uh, how much sunscreen you're using, um, probably depends on your genetics too. I think it's really tough to say as a general rule for everyone, you know, this amount of sun is too much. You know, one thing I would say is if you're regularly getting sunburn, um, you know, your, your body is telling you like, Hey, uh, turn down the sun exposure, please. Um, because one of the reasons that is painful is that it's your body's signal. It's your body's way of saying, listen, that was, that was too much sun. A lot of the cells on my skin are dead and I'm having to like <laughs> flesh them out. And that's why this hurts. So like tone it down. Much like with processed foods, you also explore the history of sunscreens. When did humans start trying to screen their skin from the sun using topical mixtures? A long, long time ago, just like processed foods. Um, so <laughs> there are some reports of, uh, for example, the ancient Egyptians trying all kinds of stuff to, to try and avoid the hot, harsh Egyptian sun. Um, but the modern day sunscreens, the stuff that you know, you, you're going to pick up at a drugstore, those are, are much newer. Around the 1960s is when we really started uh, developing those. And those modern sunscreens contain at least one of two active chemicals, zinc oxide, which is the stuff we think of with the super white substance on noses that reflects the sun, and also oxybenzone. How does oxybenzone work? So oxybenzone is one of a class of about 15 or 16 different chemicals that are allowed to be in sunscreen. And it basically works by absorbing uh, harmful UV light from the sun that would otherwise uh, potentially damage your DNA. Um, and it converts that harmful UV light to relatively harmless heat. Uh, it, it has some pretty cool dance moves that we, that we know about um, because of some fun uh, ultra-fast spectroscopy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it basically takes UV light, dances off the, ener the extra energy, and uh, converts it to heat. Because it's soaking into the skin, is there also a harmful element to this as well? Yeah, so people are looking into exactly this question. Um, so when sunscreen was originally developed, let me back up a little bit, it was not intended to be like a daily thing that you get up in the morning and you, you put it on. It was intended to be like, okay, you're going to the beach, you're going to get a lot of sun for uh, you know, a week or whatever, uh, make sure you take a bottle of sunscreen with you. These days, it's included in a lot of stuff, like a lot of makeup, uh, for example, just has sunscreen sort of built into it. So there's this concern that like, hey, we're getting a lot more of the, a lot more exposure to this than we originally thought. Maybe we should kind of check out and see if this, if this is not so great for us. And so I think those studies are still ongoing. It's not entirely clear yet. What does SPF stand for and how is it determined? So people think it stands for uh, sun protection factor. It really stands for sunburn protection factor. Um, the SPF of a sunscreen really just tells you how well it protects against a burn. Now, why is that different than sun protection factor? There are, um, the sun's light is made up of a huge variety of wavelengths. Um, you know, there's, there's visible light, which we see. There's ultraviolet light, uh, which is most of what, of what causes a sunburn. There's infrared light, which is the heat that we feel. Um, and so, you know, sunscreens are, are, are measured based on their ability to prevent a sunburn in a human subject. So, you know, the testing process involves 
uh, basically white people ha having sunscreen put on their lower back and being then being exposed to UV light and seeing how well that sunscreen protects against sunburn. Um, but it really doesn't tell you um, how well it protects against uh, other parts of the sun's spectrum. And we, you know, we don't necessarily understand how damaging that can be, um, but it is something to keep in mind. I guess my... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I guess my point here is like, you, you shouldn't slather on sunscreen and then use that as an excuse to get an, a sun overdose. You know, just because you're not getting burned doesn't necessarily mean that you're not getting damaged in some way. Well, I think that segues nicely into my next question because I learned this a long time ago and have operated under the assumption that SPF 30 is the sweet spot for quality sunscreen. It's protective enough to not have to worry for a few hours, but it's not so chemical laden that it's doing a lot of damage as it's supposed to protect you. But is there a best SPF number? You know, I think you got to find what works for you. Um, keeping in mind the golden rule, which is like, you don't want to use sunscreen as an excuse to overdose on the sun. You don't want to like go out and buy SPF 100 and then say, okay, there's no way, you know, I'm gonna apply this every five minutes and I'm gonna sit at the beach without an umbrella in the, and like roast myself for hours. Like that's just not a good idea. Um, <clears throat> if you're using SPF 30 uh, as additional protection and not, you know, getting extra sun exposure, then I'd say like, yeah, that's great. Uh, if SPF 60 works better for you, if SPF 100 works better for you, that's fine. It's really like, it's not so much the number, it's how you use the sunscreen that's important. And just to clarify, sunscreen does or does not protect against skin cancer. So uh, this is another interesting question. There are certain types of skin cancer that uh, it, it pretty clearly does protect against. Um, melanoma, which is the sort of really scary skin cancer, that, that's, a, that's a more difficult story because, so, you know, sunscreen use over the past three decades has gone up a lot. Um, but the weird thing is, so have melanoma rates. So you've got this like conundrum, okay? So if we've been using more and more sunscreen over the past 30 years, why have melanoma rates also gone up? Shouldn't they have gone down? And there's two, there's two potential explanations that I explore in the book. The first one is, well, sunscreen use has gone up, but we're using it incorrectly. We're using it as, a, as an excuse to go out and get a huge overdose of sun. Um, and so as a result, melanoma, melanoma rates not only have not gone down, but they've gone up. The other explanation, which is a little more sort of tricky, um, is like, like I was saying before, the sun's rays uh, are made up of a wide variety of wavelengths. And so early sunscreens um, blocked uh, specific uh, sections of that spectrum very, very well and did, did a pretty bad job at blocking all the rest of the sun's rays. So people were, were slathering this stuff on, not getting sunburned, getting huge overdoses of sun exposure. All the other rays were passing through, and maybe that's what's responsible for, for the melanoma. Now, that's still a theory. It hasn't really been proven yet, but it is an interesting one. So that's why I'm saying like my word of caution here is just whatever you do with sunscreen, don't use it as an excuse to overdose on the sun. Whether we're talking about cigarettes or sunscreen or processed food, we like to back up our beliefs with scientific research. But you do a great job, George, of breaking down seven different ways that turn scientific research into a flawed process. That includes fraud, 
math errors, procedural mistakes, random chance, statistical skullduggery, confounded associations, and study design. The skullduggery you go in-depth on is something called p-hacking. What is p-hacking? So p-hacking is, it's kind of tough to understand, but basically it all starts with this thing called the p-value. And the p-value is um, not a dirty word. Uh, It is a number between 0 and 1 that many scientists believe represents the level of confidence that they can have that their result is true. Now, I want to point out just right off the bat, that's not actually what the p-value really means. Uh, The actual definition is super complicated. We don't need to get into it here. The important thing is like, A lot of scientists were trained to believe incorrectly that if your p-value is less than 0.05, your result is true. If your p-value is over 0.05, your result is not true. So p-hacking is essentially either unconscious or conscious things that you do, little tweaks in your experiment or ways that you analyze the data to try and like just get your p-value under 0.05 so that, you know, you're guaranteed to publish it in a top journal or get it published at all. Um, and this is a real, you know, the, the pressure to publish among academic scientists is a, is a real pressure. It's, it's understandable. You know, you've got people trying to get tenure, making sure that they've got job security. Um, and so if you, can, if you can reliably publish results that have p less than 0.05, you know, you're kind of golden. Um, or you were at least, things are changing. People are realizing that this is kind of the wrong way to do science and there's a better way. Um, but p-hacking was, you know, that, that's what it was. It's this like unconscious or, or conscious in some cases attempt to get, get your p-value below 0.05. And some would argue, and I, and I sort of agree here, that, that it's, it's done a disservice to science overall um, over the past uh, 50 years or so. What are confounded associations? So confounded associations are basically hidden variables that are kind of controlling your data. So for example, let's say you do a study and you find that uh, people who eat a little more processed food um, are more likely to develop cancer, all right? So what you've done in this study, and I want to emphasize that studies like this are not uh, controlled trials. So it's not like you've got two groups of people, you feed one group a bunch of processed food, you feed the other group a bunch of natural food, and then you like compare what happens. No, this is just, you have a, a one giant group of people, they eat whatever they want to eat, you survey them over the years, and you track like, okay, how many of them ate, pro- ate a lot of processed food, how many of them got a bunch of cancer. Um, so a confounded association is when there's a hidden variable. So for example, um, processed food is cheaper than uh, natural food. So it could be that people who eat a lot of processed food uh, are eating it because that's what's in their budget, right? Uh, some estimates you know, say that basically on a calorie per calorie basis, processed food is roughly a quarter uh, uh, less expensive than natural food. And that's a huge difference if you're trying to feed a family of four. Um, so, you know, you could, argue, you could say like, okay, maybe the hidden variable here is not actually, it's not processed food that's causing this cancer, it's, um, it's uh, lower income. And it's, it, it's been shown for a long, long time that if you have lower income in the U.S., your health outcomes are worse uh, on, on every, <laughs> every variable, cancer, heart disease, length of life, all that stuff. So that's what a confounded association is. It's a hidden variable that you have to kind of 
root out and control for if you want to be confident in your results. Well, George, unfortunately, a lot of nutritional studies, especially nutritional epidemiology studies, are flawed as a result of one of these seven things, especially those that are observational studies. Do you believe that nutritional epidemiology is at a crossroads? And if so, is there a best path forward in your mind? That is the major debate right now. Um, you've got a group of scientists um, led by John Ioannidis at Stanford who would answer that question and say, basically, yeah, nutritional epidemiology is at a crossroads. None of the results that were published over the last 50 years are trustworthy. They have to fundamentally change their entire business model. So you said speak. 50 years, five zero? Five zero, yep. And then you've got another group of scientists, uh, a lot of whom are at Harvard, who would say basically like, listen, you know, we know there are there are minor flaws here, but by and large, like this is a, you know, trustworthy and reliable science. Um, the, the dust has not settled on this debate. My personal opinion, I lean a little more towards the Stanford folks in the sense that, you know, based of, on what I've seen, um, observational studies uh, just are not going to produce results with with a few exceptions, one of which I'll talk about in a second, um, that, that you can really be confident in. And, and the reason is a lot of the results they're producing are fairly small in magnitude. So you might see like, for example, a headline that says um, processed food linked with a 14% increase in the risk of death. Now, you know, when I read that for the first time, I was like, holy shit, 14% risk of, like, increasing risk of death. Does that mean that I'm going to multiply my life expectancy by negative 14%? I mean, that would be huge, right? Um, but, but actually, uh, it, you do a bunch of complicated math, and, and what, what actually it turns out it is, is uh, it's associated with a reduced life expectancy of, of one year. So, you know, that, that's not nothing, right? But it's not as bad as it originally sounded. So it's a relatively, um, relatively non-impressive result. Now, I'll compare that with cigarettes, which is, this is one place where observational studies produced such a shocking result that there had to be something going on there. Um, and that's what I was saying before about, you know, a, a smoker's risk of getting lung cancer, and this was determined by observational studies, is roughly a thousand one hundred percent higher than a non-smoker. I mean, you compare that to like a fourteen percent increase in risk of death. I mean, there is <clears throat> that is a massive, massive difference. So observational studies have proven useful in the past, um, but most of the studies that are done uh, with regard to diet and long-term diseases. Um, they, they're just not producing that impressive results. I'm glad you mentioned a headline that might be slightly misleading because we are a society of people who are headline learned, where we read that major headline, which oftentimes is clickbait, form our opinions on that without actually going through the article to see what some of the details are, to make sure that we're actually informed with things. Uh, how problematic is the way the news reports on scientific findings in your mind? It's gotten better, but there are still major issues we need to address. I mean, the, the main one is like, you know, it's unclear to me why we need to report on every single study that comes out linking a food to a disease. If you go back and look at the number of times we have published, we humanity have published a newspaper article saying that coffee either increases or decreases your risk of some disease. I mean, it, it is thousands over the course of the past 
20 years or something like that. And like, we don't need all those headlines. Just wait until the science is done to the point where you can be confident in the result and then publish the headline. Like, we do not need the play-by-play here. I think um, the Daily Mail is responsible for about half of those, too. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they are among the worst offenders. You know, so th- there's the frequency of, of these headlines. There's the, the feeling that, like, we need to report on every single little step in the process rather than report on the overall result. Um, and then there's uh, sometimes, you know, you've got... Um, it's really hard to understand the, like, intricacies uh, of study design, for example, and, and you know, confounded associations and p-hacking and all of that stuff. And if you're a journalist and you don't have a background in statistics or science and you're reporting on this, either, you know, there's just no way you would know that stuff. So journalists also aren't necessarily trained in the way they need to be because essentially science journalism is peer review, basically, right? That's the process. You, you publish a result and then a journalist, like they would do for any other field, should take a skeptical look at that result. But it's hard to do that if you don't have the right training. That's part of it, but obviously it begins with the scientific research itself, which forces us to ask if there's a good way to combat these seven ways to screw up what would otherwise be good scientific research. Are large randomized controlled trials the closest thing that scientific research has to a failsafe? And if so, why? So again, so someone like John Ioannidis at Stanford would say absolutely yes. And I think mostly I agree with him. Um, I'm not quite as much of a hardliner on this as he is, but there is real power in a large randomized controlled trial. One perfect recent example is the vaccine trials uh, on the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Both of those were large randomized controlled trials. And in fact, um, in the U.S., any vaccine that is approved for use has has to be tested in that way. And that is where you take two groups of people and you say, listen, we're going to give half of you a vaccine. We're going to give half of you a placebo. No one is going to know what they've got. Even the people administering the shots are not going to know what's in the needle. Um, so, and then we're going to follow you for, uh, in, in the case of the initial uh, Pfizer trial, it was four months. And we're going to see, like, how many people in the placebo group got COVID and how many people in the vaccine group got COVID. And when you've got such stunning numbers like, you know, a 95% reduction in the risk of getting COVID when you get the vaccine, I mean, and, and by the way, there are something like 40,000 people in that trial. I mean, that really is confidence building. I went out and got my vaccine as soon as I physically could. And part of the reason that I did was I actually went and read the study. And I was like, damn, this is some, <laughs> this is real good science. So you've talked about the Stanford and Harvard sides of this conversation. On the Harvard side, epidemiologist and nutritionist Walter Willett and his research team recently studied five healthy behaviors and death. Those five behaviors are smoking, exercise, obesity, alcohol intake, and diet. Did they discover anything surprising to you? Not particularly. I mean, what they discovered was they sort of reaffirmed the standard medical advice that your doctor has been telling you for a couple decades. And by the way, when I say your doctor, I don't mean like (laughs) doctors trying to sell books at Barnes and Noble. Uh, I mean like your actual, you know, family doctor. Um, 
you know, like get, get as much exercise as you can. Don't smoke. Don't drink too much. Uh, eat a sort of a balanced, moderate, healthy diet. Um, all of those things have been, have been things, you know, we've known for a long time. And what, what Willett's team found was the people who did all of those things uh, lived the longest. And, and so, no, that's, that's not all that surprising. What was a little surprising is the extent to which certain things mattered. So, for example, smoking, right? Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, if you eat, um, you know, 10% more processed food, uh, you know, that's associated with roughly a, a one-year decrease in your life expectancy. Well, if you smoke, uh, that's associated with, and we're talking like medium to heavy smokers here, that's associated with a 10-year decrease in your life expectancy. So that, I mean, that just shows you how much, like how bad smoking really is for you. It was by far the worst of those five. Uh, it was the most impactful of those five things. We're going to wrap up today's conversation the way that you wrapped your book up. You offer four bits of healthy advice just before the epilogue. Bit number four is about food. So first off, just how terrible is hyper-processed food for us? So, you know, I wish I had like an easy answer to this, but I have to say that after doing all my research, I would say it's still unsettled because yes, we do have observational data that suggests that uh, hyper-processed food intake is associated with a decrease in lifespan, but we don't have any randomized controlled trials that back that up. Uh, And so at this point, I'm sort of unwilling to put... Uh, put the dagger in the back of processed food, so to speak. Now, I will say, like, you shouldn't overdo it on any one thing, right? Like, this is not a license to to have 12 bags of Cheetos for lunch every single day for the rest of your life. Like, that's probably not going to be good for you. But, you know, a bag of Cheetos here and there in moderation, after all my research, I'm fine with that. Just like with everything else, the key is moderation. And I do have to ask you about coffee also, considering that we have conflicting reports released on nearly a daily basis. Let's just take a straight-up cup of black coffee. It hasn't been sitting in the cabinet for two years, so it's not all moldy. The beans have just (laughs) been grinded. You just hand-poured it. You drink one cup of coffee prior to noon, let's say. Is that more likely good for you than bad for you if you're not adding a bunch of creamer and sugar into it? So based on, again, this is one place where we don't really have a lot of, if any, randomized controlled trials. We've got, we've got observational data, a lot more observational data than for uh, ultra-processed food because people have been studying coffee a lot longer. Um, and, you know, it seems like, in general, moderate coffee intake is associated overall with slightly better outcomes. But, you know, like... Honestly, you almost say that begrudgingly, George. I know. And, and, and the reason I do is like, you know, you shouldn't be drinking coffee thinking like, oh, is this good or bad for me? You should be drinking coffee thinking like, who am I having this coffee with? Am I enjoying this person's company? Does it taste good? Do I like it? Is life good right now? Is this coffee like increasing my quality of life just a little bit? And if so, yeah, have your cup of coffee. George Zidane is a science communicator, host, and producer whose credits include National Geographic, MIT, The New York Times, Forbes, NPR, and much more. He's also now a published author. The book is called Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and on Us. George, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Thanks so much, Trey.
And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. Bookshop.org connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and would like to give this program a boost, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.